So take your Bibles and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let's think along these lines. I was reading, or have been reading a book uh, authored by one of the leaders of the premier Christian leadership emphasis uh, conference, whatever you want to call it, in the United States at this time. Over the last number of years, his organization has kind of been blazing a trail in leadership for the young up-and-coming, up-and-coming leaders in the Church of America. And it's been an interesting read. And uh, one of the things that I read in there um, over the last couple of days fit well enough that I thought I would start with it. So you ready? Everybody in a good mood today? Seems a little bit... It's, it's kind of like I'm sensing that you're going, oh, I'm really happy I came to church today. Um, so let me see if I can help raise the level here. Um, have you given much thought lately to what you want on your tombstone? <laughs> I'm not sure you heard me, so let me, I know they heard me, but have you given much thought lately to what you want on your tombstone? Now see, there's a problem there because... For the most part, when we get to the end of our lives, we have something in mind of what we want our life to have accomplished or to have counted for. Uh, But if you're not living today with that in mind, then what you do today may have nothing to do with what you hope to accomplish in the end. We call it purposeful living today. Here's a good point of reference for you. Okay, I'm not trying to be, you know, Debbie Downer or anything like that today as we start off. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't tell somebody what you want on your tombstone, they're going to put what they want on your tombstone. And it might not be necessarily what you were hoping for. I think I've mentioned this before. I'm not real sure, but so I'll say it here and then I'll put it away for years. But uh, the, the city that I lived in, Uh, before we came here, and the church that we served before we came to serve here uh, had a long history. Uh, Last fall, they celebrated their 100th anniversary, and so I had 20 years with them, and so I knew some of the old-timers and got to meet a lot of the new-timers, and uh, one of the old-timers that we met uh, had a family member who was, uh, I think the right term is hypochondriac. Does that communicate well? The hypochondriac is the person who sits, they're the one in your family, every family's got at least one of them, they're the ones who sit in the recliner or on the couch and television is going and they come on with one of those drug advertisement commercials. You know the kind I'm talking about? It's a 30 second commercial and they spend 25 seconds telling you all of the negative side effects of that drug. But as they start telling you what that drug treats, this person is sitting there going, I've got that. And so they go to the internet, to WebMD or MD or whatever it happens to be. They pull it up and they start reading all the symptoms of this horrible disease and they've got it. And then they don't like it when you tell them that they're crazy. And, you know, the hypochondriac, the person who believes that they're just always sick. Well, this lady was that. Always telling her family members, I don't feel well. I'm really sick. 
This is not good. I need help. I need medicine. I need a doctor. And so when she finally died, she gave thought to what was to be put on her tombstone. And she gave directions to her family members. This is what I want, whether you want it or not. This is what I want on my tombstone. You know what it said? I quote, I told you I was sick. Is that the legacy you want for yourself? So the leader of this current groundbreaking kind of leadership group says to a bunch of 20-something and early 30-year-old leaders in the Church of America today, live today to leave a legacy behind. That's good advice for all of us. And we come today to look at this last section of the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been involved in this study of what I've called the chase, where the one who is called the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes starts off by saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The most uplifting message you'll ever hear at church, everything is meaningless, is what he said. And we've watched him now as he's taken multiple steps And his own personal chase towards meaning in life and purpose in life. And he says, I tried this, money, and that didn't get me there. And I tried this, power, and that didn't get me there. And I tried this, and I tried this, and I looked here, and I looked there. And all of these things come together, and now we come to the end, and we expect him finally to say to us, here's the answer. And he does that for us. Now, this passage that we're going to look at today actually is a number of verses. I'm going to focus on the final two, all right? But let's go ahead and read. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll start reading in verse 9. Three different statements of summary here. Scholars are all over the map believing it's three different people who added it to it. Maybe it's him saying this at the end. The bottom line is it is God's word. It holds truth for us. Whoever put it there, and here's what he says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. Weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. Let me stop there and explain that term. Um, It would be the equivalent in modern language or in modern use of dealing with cattle and having a hot shot. Uh, they still call them hot shots. See, the place we used to live in, we had a guy in town who had suffered because of some medication his mother took. He t- suffered some developmental problems, uh, and he was about our age. He was able, just able to live on his own, uh, and somebody in town gave him a job out at the cell barn out at the north end of town. And he'd ride his bicycle out to the north end of town every Saturday, and his job was to perch himself up on one of the uh, boards of the fence there, in the chute, and as those cattle came running through, he'd take that hot shot and he'd just pop them in the bottom as they ran by. And he'd sit there and he'd laugh at watching those cows when they got hit with that electricity and it'd push them on. That's a goad, okay? So when he says here, the words of the wise are like goads, that's the picture you need to have in mind. They steer us, they direct us, they motivate us. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. Let me stop there. That verse together says that what he has written through this book, and not just that, but the basic wisdom that comes from the heart of God, the one shepherd, 
serves to motivate us in life, to direct us in life, to keep us firmly established in life. That's quite a statement for a guy who in the early part of the book and then at various places throughout the book returned to his basic thesis that said life is meaningless. At the end of his chase, he finds answers. And part of his answer is wisdom will hold you grounded in your life. And wisdom comes from the one shepherd, that is, God himself. Verse 12, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. To you students, memorize that last verse. Go to your class tomorrow and tell your math teacher, and much study is a weariness of the flesh, and just tell them that straight from the Bible. No, let's don't do that. Verse 12, excuse me, verse 13. Now we come to the passage that I want us to zero in on today. The end of the matter. In other words, he says, all's been said. And so I come to my final conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing whether good or evil. Two basic statements from this entire chase and everything that he's been talking about and where do you find purpose and meaning for your life, it comes down to these two statements. Fear God and keep his commandments. So let's talk about those for a little bit this morning. And we start with the fear of God, the most obvious one. And the problem with it, it is so obvious that maybe it's too obvious for us to get what he really means. So let's tear it apart. Let's unpack it. Let's spread it around here a little bit and see exactly what he's talking about so that it might help us at the end of our chase to find true meaning in life. Fear God. We're at a little bit of a disadvantage with the way we use this word these days. Because the way we use the word fear invokes for us that emotion in which we are afraid. Now, that's not all he's saying here, but let's try it on for what it has to say to us. Now, at this point, I want us to take a step back, or actually maybe a few steps back in church history, particularly in the American church history. But as we do that, let's do it from the basis of today. As you look at the world around you today, do you think that America, let's just pull it down to America and then we'll pull it down to Lumberton and then we'll pull it down to your house. Do you think that America today fears God? Do you think America today is afraid of God? I was having a discussion this morning during the Sunday school hour. You ever wonder what preachers do during Sunday school? I have discussions with other people who don't go to Sunday school. And it's good because it makes a sermon. It helps me out. A great example. In the early service, I was talking about just the government of America today and the climate of government. I'm not talking administrations. I'm not talking political parties. I'm just talking about the general American government system. Do you think that we operate as if we have some kind of afraidness of God? In other words, do you think that America and the way we are operating as a country these days acknowledges that there is a God in heaven and that he will call us into account and there will be consequences for our behavior? Do you think America is afraid of God? I say no. 
But in this discussion, I was just brought in. And it's not that it's a new discussion. It's just that it hadn't really hit my radar screen this morning. But this whole case of the abortion doctor that's been in the news over the last month or so. What does that say to us as a society when we're willing to say to somebody, take this life and do with it what you will? Horrendous kind of stuff. Stuff that when we look at Hitler and the Third Reich, that we would look at them and say, you should be strung up for that. And in fact, that's what they were, the ones who were caught. And we turn in an American society that we embrace stuff Okay, now maybe some people say, we're not embracing that. That guy's on trial. Yeah, okay, maybe he is. But take the whole industry that we're talking about there. Do we have any sense that God might say, I will hold you in account for that? You go read this summer. I'm going to be preaching through the minor prophets. Each Sunday that I preach through the, uh, through the summer, I'll take one sermon out of one of the 12 minor prophets. We'll just work our way through. The basic idea is somebody ought to say something about the stuff that's going wrong. That's what those minor prophets did. God called them into the mix to stand up and say, this is what God says. That's wrong. Fix it. But you see, it's grounded in a basic fundamental awareness that God is the judge. And he will, in fact, call us into account for the behavior and for the decisions that we make. That should make you afraid. If you happen to be one, now we're off of the country and let's put it on us in our homes. If you happen to be one who just kind of gives God a tip of the hat, a little wave on Sunday morning and say, hey, check you next week, and then go live contrary to his plan through the rest of the week, might be some grounds for a little bit of fear, being afraid of God and his justice. Those minor prophets, we're going to see that part of God's complaint against not just his own people, but some of the surrounding nations there was the way they treated babies. America needs to wake up. And it's easy for us, okay, here's the part I want you to be really careful about. It's easy for us to sit in church and cherry pick issues that we don't like too much and say, okay, God is going to get them. They should be very afraid. And then we turn right around and go ahead and do our own thing. Maybe I should ask it this way. Do you think the church in America today, not just us, but includes us, do you think the church in America today has a healthy sense of being afraid of God? This is where I want to go back in American history a little bit. Um, There was a time uh, where a particular type of preaching was the order of the day, the flavor of the day, if you will. We put a name on it, and probably the name partially comes, I don't really know this, but I, I suspect it partially comes from one of its greatest proponents, one of its greatest practitioners. Uh, he was, he, he was a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. The, the type of preaching I'm talking about is called fire and brimstone kind of preaching. You heard of that before? Have you heard it from me before? Don't answer that. Um, I'm going to give you a slice of it this morning, okay? 
Now, there's a reason that you don't hear a whole lot of that anymore. Part of it is because God's people don't have the stomach for it anymore. I was really glad, by the way, when I got to church this morning and I saw men showing up for church. The reason I was glad about that is because I know the sermon I preached to men last Sunday morning. And I was kind of halfway afraid that a bunch of the men would go, you know what, I don't need that from the preacher. If I want to get beat up like that, I'll just stay home and listen to my wife. That was just to see if you're awake out there. You see, we don't have a stomach, really, for that hard-edged preaching that says, you better turn or burn. And we've hung little cute sayings on it like, if you don't turn to Jesus, you're going to be smoking more and enjoying it less. That fire and brimstone kind of preaching that essentially says, as Jonathan Edwards reminded us, that you are a sinner and you are in the hands of an angry God. The problem with that is that that's not the full picture of grace. Jesus didn't come just to get you to turn away from hell. He came to give you what? Life. But our churches and our preachers are so concerned about potentially offending somebody, which then gets in the way of the business plan that we have for our organization, that they might not come back and they might not give their money. And so I'll just soft pedal a little bit of the good news, give you just enough for you to go away and forget it quickly enough that you'll come back. Listen, we need a good, I'm talking about our churches generally now, we need a good, solid dose of being afraid because God will call into account the deeds of the wicked. And if that happens to be you and me, we're going to pay. Okay, now there's your fire and brimstone for the day. It gets better from here. Because I don't want to give too much because you might not come back. What are you chasing in your life? We started off with that question. For 12 or 13 weeks now, we've been processing through and trying to ask the question, are you chasing the right stuff in life? Look at what he says again, this first statement. Fear God. That needs to be seen I'm talking about that healthy sense of being afraid of justice and consequences, better said. It needs to be seen in the way we live our lives every day. It needs to be seen in the convictions that we carry. It needs to be seen in the way we treat other people. I have been, oh, what's the right word here? I I, I got a phone call, text first. One of those pleading kind of texts from a friend that said, I really need to talk to you today. That was on Friday. I was in the middle of some stuff, and I texted him back, and this guy lives in another place. You wouldn't know him if he was standing up here with me today, so I'm not going to reveal any of that kind of stuff. But it was one of those texts that I could tell, you know, this was not going to be a, hey, how are you doing, things going okay kind of thing. Things were not going okay. I spent over an hour with this young man, a minister of the gospel, and listened as he talked to me about how... God's people, a select group of God's people, 
particularly staff people at a church, how they were dealing with him over an issue that required significant grace. You heard the saying before, maybe you've heard it from me. It's one of those old things, I hate to pull up old school stuff, but Christians are the only ones who shoot their wounded. You're not the only army in the world that shoots their wounded. Well, he's being shot and kicked and beat up and drugged behind in the whole nine yards, and he's trying to decide today, do I just stick with this, or do I turn my back on the whole Christian enterprise and go about my business? Let me tell you something, that weighs heavy on my heart for these young ministers that we have. The Church of America today needs a good, solid dose of being afraid of the consequences of sin that only God can deliver. So let me take the word and let's twist it now. And what I want to do is I want to twist it to what really is the biblical sense of what the writer of Ecclesiastes gives us here. Because even though that element of what we just spent about 10 minutes talking about, it's there, the real emphasis of this comes into what we're about to say now. And this is a word that comes out of the Hebrew language, and the sense behind it is not so much to push being afraid and the emotion of it, it's really sent to push the idea of reverence and respect that produces a sense of awe in the person. So when he says to us, the end of the chase for me, when I finally come to the answer of what it all means, fear God, respect him, live in reverence before him, have a sense of awe about who he is and about what he does. We need to hear that. This is one of those kind of messages I'm, I'm really... I'm not really afraid of this because God's word needs to be preached, whatever, whether everybody's happy with it or not. But this is one of those kind that so cuts against the grain of 21st century Christianity in America. What I believe is true of us is that we like to say, God, I appreciate you. All the difference in the world, by the way, between appreciating and respecting. Between appreciating and having a sense of wonder about who God is. I think most of us appreciate God. Look at your prayer life. See if it doesn't measure up. If we regularly say, God, thank you for, and then whatever it is, you throw that into the blank there. That might just be an appreciation kind of statement. But the difference between those two extremes is when we appreciate God, it's almost as if we just have him as a little relic, as a little piece of our lives, and we set him up on a shelf, and when we need him, we'll pull him down, and we'll rub him like he's a good little genie, and we might even say, hey, I need this today. And when we get that, we put him back on the shelf, and we say, thank you very much, I'll go on my way. That's appreciation. It's also heresy when you get right down to it. At the very least, you have to say that it's theologically ridiculous to treat God that way. Maybe a way for me to get to it is to say, what is your chase focused on? Let me see if I can pull this idea of fearing God here down onto a human level and put it on the relationship side of things so that we can have an example to translate to our relationship with God. 
Um, when I was a very young child, uh, I've told you some of this kind of stuff. I'll pull it together for this cause today. When I was a young child, my father was not a pastor. He'd been called to the ministry early on in his life, and he ran away from that for a period of time in the early 60s when I was <clears throat> so many years old. Um, the, Dad was running a computer business in Houston. He had gone into business with another guy, and the two of them were trying to make a company fly, early part of the computer industry in American life. And uh, it was in those days when computers filled up an entire room, uh, and they used punch cards and discs and tape and all that kind of stuff. And most of the time, he would work all night long. They had to justify every minute that was used on that computer. And so he would work all night long most of the time. Um, and he was drinking heavily in those days. I remember days as a young child when dad would come home and it was a terrible environment. I was genuinely afraid of him. I remember days when my brother and I would go underneath my parents' bed and go up underneath the headboard at the very center part of this big bed and we would hide there because it was a place where we could get away because we were so afraid of what was going on. Fear. A healthy sense of self-preservation kind of fear. And so in the middle of those days is when God renewed his call and my dad in great wisdom, decided he better do what God had called him to do. And so he went into the ministry, and we moved away from Houston into central Texas. Dad began the process of finishing his education, and he was serving as pastor in a local church, and we moved to another church. And, uh, and then I hit my teenage years as he was a pastor. And while I was still afraid of him, our relationship was better. He was gone a lot to seminary. And, and so we just kind of rocked along, and it was kind of one of these... Um, you know, we kind of agreed to give each other space kind of a relationship. But then I hit my teenage years and I decided that I was going to go into full-blown rebellion because I didn't like him, I didn't like what he stood for, I didn't like all the stuff that came with church stuff. And so I decided then that I was going to go a different way. Total lack of respect. Get that? The fear part was there, but a total lack of respect. So we processed through that, and I got deeper and deeper in my rebellion and drug use and abuse, uh, and somewhere in the mix of all of that, I cut ties totally and went about my own business. And then God called me to the ministry, and he put me and Teresa together. And so we began to grow, and I began to grow, and I began to see some things. When God called me into the ministry, I began to understand a little bit more about who my dad was and how he had uh, he deserved my respect for what he was able to do as a pastor, and so that began to grow. But also recognize that he was really hard. I don't know if it's his deal or if he just had a bunch of knuckleheads or what. But he was hard with staff, and staff didn't stay a whole long time with him. And it was kind of one of those things you could tell there were issues. And so as I grew up, I was seeing that. And, and then in the midst of that, God in all of His um, Injustice, I thought, said to me in no uncertain terms, you're supposed to go down there and be on staff with your dad. The church where he was serving was looking for a youth minister. They contacted me. I went, went, I sat down with my dad. By this time, our relationship was getting better. 
for the first time, probably the healthiest it had ever been in our lives. And I remember sitting down with my dad and saying, you know, they want me to be youth minister here. Um, I, I don't know if I want to be on staff with you. Uh, you know, we're, we're closer than we've ever been. And I don't want to jeopardize what we have. Um, so I'm just not sure if I should do this or not. And he said this. My dad always was a smart aleck. He said, if, you, if what we have in a relationship cannot stand us being together, we don't have anything, Mark. So I shot him for that. Well, not literally, but in my head, I thought, I don't need to hear that. But God said, there's your answer. So we loaded up when we moved. And I spent time on staff with him. And it was in those years on staff with him that I completed the leap from just being afraid of him. I wasn't afraid of him anymore. But I started building an incredible sense of respect for who he was, what he did, what he knew. It was in the being together. It was in the doing of life together and the doing of ministry together that I was able to move away from that old part of not liking him, being afraid of him, and having no respect for him. And finally, full-blown, I had a chance to see, this guy's good at what he does. He's smart. I never would have said that when I was 18 years old about him. I remember the day that he walked out for the last time. He'd been pastor there for a long time. He retired. The church had already voted on me to be the pastor. And so the minute that he walked out of the door that last time, I became the senior pastor of that church. And I remember standing at the door, watching him, I mean at the hall, watching him as he walked down the hall towards the door. And these thoughts were just going out one another in my mind and it was full-blown war inside of my head about the excitement of what was ahead but also the fear of what it meant to be a senior pastor of a church and the personal pain of him walking out and as he walked out the door he never looked back he walked across the street to the parking lot got in his car he never looked back he just drove into the next part of his life and I remember standing there thinking if I could only become half the pastor that he is We'll be okay. Full-blown move to respect. Not afraid anymore, but in the biblical use of the term, in fear of him. Consumed with respect. A reverence almost. Let me give you another example of that. This one won't be as long as that one. About eight years ago now, I was minding my own business in a sermon kind of like this one, and God broke through the reality of it all and called me to go back to school. Now, that was, in and of itself, was a big deal for me, lots of process going through that, but I remember in September, it was a week before the first hurricane came through here. I know that because after the second week, I'd be on campus for two weeks They let us out early on the last day because they weren't sure exactly where that hurricane was coming through and people already were evacuating here, heading towards Waco. They let us out early and I walked out into a parking lot at the hotel full of people and there wasn't enough rooms for anybody. But on the front end of that thing, so that gives you a time stamp on this, 
the front end of that two-week stretch, I had been given the assignment. It was a theology and Bible section, two weeks of intense focus on the Bible and theology. And I'd been given this textbook. It was actually a commentary, the Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament, a great series for you teachers to be studying from if you, if you need commentaries. Uh, and this particular one was on the book of 1 Corinthians. It was from a guy, written by a guy that I didn't know anything about. His name was David Garland. And um, when I got the commentary, we were supposed to read it and have done some stuff, and then when we go to class, that would be part of the textbook. Uh, and I noticed that when I had that book, it was voted as across the entire world in a scholarly work, it was the number one commentary in the New Testament written the previous year. So I walked into that classroom the first day and I sat down with that book and hundreds of others it seemed like, but that one's sitting on the desk because we were going to start immediately with it. David Garland was the author of that. I sat there and into the room now walks these two professors who were going to be leading our two-week session and one of them is a guy named... David Garland. I didn't know who he was. Hadn't heard of him, really. I was pretty sheltered in all of that. I came to find out he was the dean of the school, the seminary that I was in, and he's a world-class New Testament scholar. Four students, two professors for two weeks, eight hours a day stuck in a room together. So I went from not knowing who he was but owning a book that he had written to having the opportunity to sit down and to just listen to what he had to say and the depth of New Testament that he knows and pulling all of it together in a scholarly way and yet also in a very simple way that even I could understand. After two weeks of that, I walked away and I was thinking to myself out of those sessions, every one of them, when he would open scripture and just start teaching us out of it and By the way, that's pretty intimidating when you get a world-class scholar like that and four guys, and he says to you, Mark, what do you think about this passage? Uh, well, uh, I don't really know. I walked out of those sessions thinking, this must be just a taste of what it was for the disciples when they would walk away from one of those teaching times when Jesus would pull them together and open life for them and teach them God's ways. I have tremendous respect for Dr. David Garland. My hope is that at some point he'll be able to come here and preach for us here. You'll see what good preaching really is. Respect that is filled with reverence and a sense of awe. It happens in our daily lives. It needs to happen in our daily lives. If it doesn't happen for you, then you might have a pride problem when it's all said and done because there are people that God puts in your life who are intended to take you to a new place. And that's the word that the writer of Ecclesiastes pulls in at this point. At the end of the chase, when it's all said and done, and he's tasted meaninglessness, He says, the end of the matter is fear God. This is more than appreciation. This is a sense of connection. But it's not connection because I deserve it. It's connection because God allows it. Here's a good thing for those of you who take notes in this. Here's a good thing for you to remember. I respect 
what I value. I respect what I value, but the next step is that I value what I know. And that's the key to this word for us. It's about knowing God. So the word fear is not just, it is partially that, but it's not just that I'm afraid. It's better than that. It's to tie into life. It's to say, because I know God, I have the ability to value him. I know who he is. I know how he treats me. I know what he thinks about me, what he says about me. I know how he treats me. And consequently, when I put that that personal experiential level, when I put that with the reality that he is also the one who spoke the words and all of creation came into being and in order. How incredible is this God who says to you, crawl up over here with me. Draw near to me. Feel my heartbeat for you. That drives us to reverence and respect. It's experiential in its nature. So here's how we pull it all together, this stuff. When you allow him to become the focus of your chase, he draws you to himself. And as he draws you to himself, he gives you life. That's more than just the... Elimination of the chance of going to hell. It is that. He takes away the whole opportunity for you to choose death if you choose life. But that life is not just some eternal dodging of hell. It's a life that starts right now and that drives us in our chase. The writer of this book says when it all comes down, the end of the matter is put God in the right place in your life. And then he also adds to it and keep his commandments. But I'm not going to go into a whole big long explanation of keep his commandments because my belief is that if we get the fear of God part right, the keep his commandments just follows naturally for us. The problem is we don't get the first part right. Every aspect of our lives turns towards him if we fear him as this verse says to. But we have this dilemma us 21st century Christians. The flavor of the day Christianity says, park him on a shelf. Pull him out when you need him. 21st century Christianity is a lot like 20th century Christianity, and that's the one that says, just keep his commandments, don't worry about fearing him, and so it all becomes modern Phariseeism. It's part of what I see with guys like the one I was talking to the other day and and that church business crowd that's out there that talks about let's do church business. It's all about the right perception of people instead of the right handling of people. The end of the matter. Everything has been heard. Fear God. Who is God in your life today? Is he a nice little ornament on the shelf of your life? Do you appreciate him? Or does he strike the chord of fear deep within you that says, I don't want to disappoint him. 
I don't want his judgment, his judgment on my life. I don't want to marginalize him in my life. I want him in my life. There's the proper end to your chase. Finally, the end. Let's pray. Is that true for you? As you sit there this morning, can you honestly say, my passion in life is God? Fear God. It's based on experience. It's based on involvement. It's based on receiving what he offers to you, but it's also based on investing back into him everything about who you are. If you don't have that, the good news is that there's a new level that you can go to with him. If you have that, then the challenge for you is before this day is over, you're going to have a hundred more opportunities to abandon that for a nice little personal Jesus that you can control. And if you choose that, when it's all said and done, you'll be with the preacher in chapter 1 and you'll say it's vanity, it's meaningless, nothing makes sense. But at the end of the matter, finally, fear God. So, Father, we, take, we ask you to take this time and do your work. We pray that your spirit, even now, would have free reign with us. Give us the honesty we need to evaluate our own chase. Give us the insight we need to, maybe for the first time, to come aware of some things in who we are and how we operate that clearly do not fit your purpose for us. Give us the courage we need to make the choices we need to make to get it right. We pray even now, right this moment, that your spirit would be turning somebody's life upside down to the glory of God. In Jesus' name.